Season 4, Episode 10 of the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. Keep birds looking great and full of life this winter with Westerman's new Wild Bird Winter Mix. Wild birds need a good source of fat and energy to survive the cold winter months. This winter mix has been especially created to provide them with the source of nutrition and energy when natural food sources are scarce. Available at various pet and lifestyle retailers across South Africa, online and in-store. Westermans for the love of birds. Please take some time to visit our online store on our website, www.thebirdinglife.com. We sell optics, books, art, and obviously Westerman's products, and a whole lot more, all to help you as a birder. If you need further assistance about products or anything else around the birding life, drop us an email on info at thebirdinglife.com, and we will get back to you. So this is the last episode of season four. And like always, we want to take this opportunity to thank everyone that has supported The Birding Life over the last four seasons. We are really looking forward to season five, which is coming up in four weeks' time, and a little bit of a different show format, which we know you're going to love. So in this week's episode, I chat to two guests. A little bit later on, I'm going to be chatting to Ngava Game Reserve's head guide, who has just recently been crowned the 2022 Safari Guide of the Year, Cameron Pierce. But before that, I'm going to be having a chat to Roger Machen, who is the Product Marketing Manager at Canon, who's going to be telling us all about the exciting products that Canon has for the birding market, including the R7. I just want to apologize for the poor audio quality on Roger's side. Unfortunately, when we recorded this interview, he was in the midst of load shedding, so he didn't have access to the normal microphones he uses. But this is a great interview, and it's well worth a listen. So yeah, this is just the challenges we face in the season of load shedding and recording podcasts remotely. So let's get started on this week's episode. So I was watching on social media that you guys were, Canon was involved in the 2022 Safari Guide of the Year and you guys were at, um, up at Bushwa. So how were you guys involved in the, in the competition? Um, well, yeah, they, 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 I think it was last year, um, Wild Earth TV, the, uh, the official broadcaster, they, uh, they approached us last year and asked us if we wanted to get involved. And um, we, we decided to do a, um, a photographic uh, guide type of element to the competition. Um, that last year was their their tenth anniversary, and they had a photographic element back in the beginning. And uh, so after a short while, they just decided it was just too difficult. You know, either you give five five of the competitors the same camera and try and get them to to get a decent shot, or um, you know, you put five of them in exactly the same situation and try to see who gets the best shot. But you're judging them on photographic uh, capabilities, which is a tad unfair. Um, you know, you could have the the greatest camera known to man, lots of photographic skills, and you're sitting in front of a, an impala chewing grass and nothing else. So um, they asked us if we would come on board. So we sponsored this, the photographic element last year uh, just on the idea of judging the guides on how they treat a pro photographer. So we went there with uh, a guy called Andrew Back from WildEye, who's a, a wildlife photography safari uh, company. And um, what we did, we, judged, we put the guides through a whole bunch of uh, quite stringent tests on, on how well they um, treated us as photographers. And then um, when they came back this year and they said, would you like to be a broadcast sponsor? 
Um, I went overseas, got a little bit of extra budget uh, in Euro, and um, this year around we were the broadcast sponsor. So uh, not only are you sponsoring the photographic element, we sponsored, uh, believe it or not, the Birding Prize, and uh, and we were the, the the title sponsor for the for the overall broadcast. Um, yeah, lots of fun. I got to be honest with you, uh, it was such a great event this year. I must say, Cameron was just raving about the R7. He said it's absolutely a fantastic camera. So you got a big fan there. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, he was one of the lucky ones. I, I, I didn't have enough R7s to give them all uh, one. Uh, two of them had R7s, three of them had R10s. But uh, he was one of the lucky ones. He got got the decent piece of work. So, Roger, as an outsider, you know, watching, you know, watching over the last couple of years in terms of photography, there seems to be a lot more push from Canon to attract bird photographers to the brand. And there was a lot of excitement about the RF 800mm f11 lens. And more and more, as I go into the field, I'm seeing a lot of bird photographers using this um, this lens on the field. And it seems to be a great option. You know, the fact that it's 17, 18,000 on RAD, and it's really an affordable lens for bird photography. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because, uh, you know, birding has most certainly been something that um, in the last two years, despite the lockdowns, um, it was the one type of uh, hobby or pastime that actually grew kind of exponentially. We even found that, um, you know, in, in countries where, it wasn't a big thing. It, it started growing uh, astronomically. And, and um, I was actually over the moon when I found out that, that Canon was launching a whole bunch of products almost specifically aimed at birding. And not just that 800 F11, which on a full-frame sensor is fantastic, but they also made a, a very, very small 600mm F11. Now, for for the majority of bird photographers, you know, 600, 800 is where you want to be. But my gosh, it costs a fair whack of money. And those lenses are you know, often huge, difficult to, to swing around the sky, you know, it's for birds in flight. And then with the, the advent of mirrorless, and um, we, we're going to get into this this, this discussion shortly in, in terms of DSLR mirrorless, why to move and why to switch. Mirrorless brought a whole new animal to the, to, to the game, and it's changed things phenomenally, not just in terms of, of bird photography, but all wildlife photography. I was actually really amazed that, that Canon sort of jumped, jumped the gun there and started doing some crazy things, not just having these spectacular quality 600, 800 lenses, not just having them at a crazy small size and weight, but also having them at, a, at an incredible price. You know, the, the 800, as you say, is about less than 20,000, and the, the 600 is in the sort of 11, 12,000 round category. On full frame, they're, they're really exciting for birders, but now with the advent of the R10 and the R seven with with crop sensor oh my gosh it changes the world astronomically i think the only thing that a lot of birders and well photographers were concerned about and i'll let you answer this i know this has probably been spoken about many many times is that f11 because you know it's always like when you talk about um lenses always you know you want to get that f number as low as you can and f11 i know a lot of people when i spoke to them about it said no they won't use the lens because they don't want an f11 lens you know how would you answer people like that there's two sides to that story uh, number one f11 with regards to the amount of light that it lets in. Um, and that may well have been a saga, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. But with the advent of the high ISO capabilities of these cameras and the advent of some incredible denoise software, you know, the high ISO capabilities of cameras is, uh, are not really a thing. So the amount of light that F11 lets in uh, is relatively low in, in the greater scheme of things. But when you can now shoot at higher ISOs, it becomes a non-issue. The other big thing is when it comes to depth of field. And this is what, I, what I've often spoken to 
birds photographers and birds in flight in particular the overwhelming majority of photographers are of, of some repute let's let's put it that way of big names type of story when they're shooting bird in flight on average they're shooting at minimum f8 to increase the chances of getting the bird in in focus and even bird, bird on a branch yes you want to do f4 f5.6 etc and that's fine but a lot of people have this f11 number in their head based on a 50 mil 70 mil 200 mil lens when you look at the amount of compression you get from a 600 or an 800 mil lens, the perspective that is is flattened to such an incredible degree that on an 800 mil lens focused on, say, something the size of a sparrow in a tree, you know, 10 meters, 15, 20 meters away from me, the amount of depth of field I have can be measured in centimeters. We're talking like, you know, three, four, five centimeters. F11, when you look at a Landscape lens can be anything from, you know, the house in front of me to the trees in the background to the mountains in the distance. Everything's in focus. Yes, that's a 24mm lens. But don't apply that F11 depth of field to an 800mm lens because the compression is so massive that that blurring of the background effect is neither here nor there. But then, you know, put those two things into perspective. You know, if you want an 800mm with uh, a brighter f-stop than that. We do make a wonderful 800 mil 5.6, which weighs uh, three and a half kilos and sells for uh, you know well over 300,000 rand. So if you do want that shallow depth of field, then go there. And, and by all means, be that purist who says, you know, I, I don't want to use F11. I'm I'm happy with you spending you know 300,000 rather than 20,000. Let's put it that way. Canon's been on an interesting journey with mirrorless cameras. I actually remember a few years ago at the Canon Roadshow, um, and I, it wasn't that long ago. Honestly, if I, as, as a person who's a passionate Canon user, if I were to go to mirrorless at that time, I wouldn't have gone for Canon. There were probably, dare I say, better mirrorless cameras on the market, but there really has been a growth with Canon, where Canon has almost become you know, the, the mirrorless camera of choice with many, many photographers. So tell us about that journey, how Canon has grown and some of the, the newer cameras that have just been released. Yeah, um, it, it, it is a very good point. You know, a lot of people expected Canon to play catch up with the other brands that were maybe leading the market or maybe um, you know, pushing the boundaries as far as technology was concerned. But Canon was on a totally and utterly different journey. Um, we've never been in a situation of let's try and catch up with ABC brand or XYZ specification. We've always been about what's best for existing Canon users. What's going to make existing Canon users happier at the end of the day? And Mirrorless for us was the excuse that we needed to launch a new lens system. We've been trying to launch a new lens system for, for absolutely ages. You know, the, the EF mount was launched in 1987, and you know, after 30 years, it was getting a, a tad tired. Um, you know, the data communication between camera and lens was designed at about sort of 500 kilobytes a second. And it doesn't sound like a lot. You know, back in 1987, my gosh, that was grease lightning. By the time we reached the late 2020s, you know, well, late sort of mid-2016s, that sort of time period, you know, the, the cameras like the DX2 and the DX3 were pushing the boundaries of DSLR technology. DX3 is still the fastest DSLR ever made in, in the fact that even with a mirror movement, uh, it still managed to get an effect of 16 frames a second with autofocus tracking in between each each frame. And um, the DX level cameras are, are stupendously expensive, but we reached uh, almost like a technology threshold with regard to the EF mount. So yes, there was a lot of push from, from competitors on mirrorless, and we were a little bit tentative at first. And then we realized that we had the mass, maximum benefit of um, the autofocus technology, number one. Number two, the existing lens mount. And uh, number three, importantly, that we could launch a totally new lens 
mount completely ready for the next 35 odd years. So, um, you know, when we launched in, in 2018, we launched a camera like the ESR and everybody looked at the ESR and they were like, oh, this is boring. It's a 5D4 and a small body. It's strange. It's unusual. And what they essentially missed was the fact that there was four lenses announced at the same time. And the ESR was meant to be just a little stopgap to show you that we had a new lens system. And yes, it was exactly the same as the 5D4. But one of the first lenses out there was the 24105. And you had to look at that 24105, which is the staple of the overwhelming majority of photographers out there. And if you put the ESR, which is exactly the same spec as the 5D4, same sensor, same processor, same everything, and you put the ESR with a 24105 RF lens, and you compare it to a 5D4 with an EF lens, you can see immediately that the quality was in that lens. At the same time, we launched two ludicrous lenses, the 50mm 1.2 and the 2870 f2, both of which were absolutely and utterly insane. And the market was going, they, they don't, don't make any sense. And we were like, easy, just watch this space. Uh, and essentially what happened, you know, we, we then launched the ESRP, which is exactly the same as the 6D2 in a smaller, lighter, slimmer body with the mindset of going, okay, even if you haven't shot with a 5D, if you've shot with a 6D, this will give you some, some sort of idea. By the time we launched the R5 and the R6, which were the massive big news, we leapfrogged everybody, we really made a huge statement about mirrorless on the R5 and the R6. By the time we'd launched those, there was already uh, 17 lenses to choose from. And the world kind of realized all of a sudden, hang on a second, Canon's not just launching a new camera. We're launching an entirely new system. Uh, and as of now, we're, we're, we're 26 lenses, 27 lenses, 28 lenses. Uh, we're almost 30 lenses, put it that way, since 2018. In less than four years, we've put almost 30 lenses into the market. We now have seven bodies, which gives you a massive range of options photographically. And the indication is quite simply easy, Tiger. If you'd watched the, if you'd known what Canon did, if you'd gone back to 1987, the first camera we launched was the uh, EOS 650, which was very much an amateur camera. And in the two years following it, we'd launched something like 18 Pro lenses before we launched the EOS 1 Pro body. And um, it worked for us then, and it's working for us now. So that was, I, I try to put it in a nutshell. That's a, a small, shorter version that I can give you. It was, um, trust us, we know what we're doing, and we're in this for the long haul. This isn't just uh, a new camera with some really nice new specs. We're thinking about the entirety of a new system but also, most importantly, the compatibility with the older EF system. And the EF system is the widest range of lenses ever made, and it's the biggest selling range of lenses ever made, and it's the most the nearest to universal mount that there is out there. There's a lot of video camera companies like Blackmagic and Red, for example, who use the EF mount as a standard. It's the nearest to an industry standard for an autofocus lens there is. And we've made 150 million of those lenses in the last 35 years, we have to take care of that base, that machining field. We have to make sure that all of the new cameras fit and work with those older lenses. Yeah, there's going to be some restrictions, but uh, at the end of the day, Canon's mission wasn't about let's try and keep up with the Joneses. It was let's do the best thing for existing Canon users. So as much as there's been an excitement around the mirrorless movement and people going across to mirrorless cameras and people raving about how fantastic they are. There still are people that are using DSLR cameras and they say they're not going to be changing across because they're sticking to DSLR. And some of these are really good photographers. What would you what would you say to these people? 
Well, quite quite simply, mirrorless is the future. Make no mistake, this is what we're doing for the future. And we are still making DSLR. We are still making the EF lenses. We are, however, trimming the range. And um, you know, three years ago, we had, I think, about uh, nine or 10 DSLR models. We're down to about seven. Uh, if we look at the other brands out there, Olympus, Fuji, Sony, they've all stopped making DSLR completely. Panasonic never did. And right now, it's, it's, it's Canon and Nikon who are the last two brands making DSLR. Nikon have trimmed their range down from about nine models to about four or five. Uh, but the writing is on the wall that, that DSLR is getting to a point where we've reached a, a technology threshold. And, and, and most notably, if you look at the EF lens system, 2015, I think, was the last year where I saw a radical, huge change. Uh, in, in, a, in a design on the on the EF system with the um, the 11 to 24, the the ultra wide angle rectilinear zoom. That was the last time I actually saw something phenomenal. Everything else since then has been Mark II, Mark III, a tweak and update, slightly smaller. You know, there's nothing much to it, and we we reached a point where there's not much else we can do with regards to that mount, with regards to those cameras. Mirrorless allows us uh, an entirely new world of possibilities, and quite simply. Yes, we will keep supporting DSLR cameras. We will keep making DSLR cameras. We'll keep making EF lenses almost till it stops making sense. You know, I, I think about four years ago, we stopped making our, our, our last film camera, the ES1V. It was something you, you could actually still request from Canon to get an ES1V. I think the last one off the production line, production line was about 2017. Just give you an idea that there is always somebody out there who wants to stick with the older system. And that's fine. Uh, and we get that. But understand that a lot of the production lines are going to be moved over to, over to mirrorless. Um, so those unique, different lenses that you might be used to, we just can't get anymore. Uh, one of the first victims was um, a 24 to 70 f4 lens. And the, the entire market went, oh, my gosh, why are you discontinuing this lens? Right, well, the 24 f4 is outselling it like 100 to 1. Um, we're still making the 24 f4. If 100 out of, you know, 99 out of, out of every 100 people are buying the 24105, why do we still need to make the 2470? Let's rather switch that production line over to, uh, to mirrorless stuff. So, so yeah, you know, there's, there's two, two schools of thought here. It's number one, rest assured, Canon's going to be the last brand standing making DSLR, and we'll still make some lenses and stuff for a certain amount of time. It will get to a point where we can't get spare parts, we can't get accessories, we can't get odds and ends anymore. And you have to put the stake in the sand and, and make the move to mirrorless. I think one of the things that people are often quite scared of is the cost. And, you know, we talk about the R7 now, but what's interesting is the, you know, if you take one of the, the most popular ca cameras that Canon had for bird photographers, the 70 Mark II, and you look at the price of the R7, I mean, brand new, the two of them, the pricing is pretty comparable. It's almost the same kind of price range. Yeah, well, it's a really, really big thing. I mean, I, I think... About two, three years into the lifespan of the 72, I had people nagging me for, well, when's the 73 coming? And, and more often, I would sit in front of them and say, okay, what did you pay for your 72? I think when we discontinued it, I think the retail price was about 22, 23, that sort of area, about 22,000 rand. And people who bought a 72 and were sitting on it for about 22,000 rand, they'd had it for three, four years. What they wanted was better autofocus, better high ISO, more frames per second. More pixels, better video capability. Those five things came along and um, you wanted, I, I would sit in front of people and say, if we had to do it into, in a DSLR, the replacement would probably be about 35, 40, maybe 45,000 rand. And a lot of people were like, well, no, well, you know, we don't really want to pay that. So it was just very much a case of, you know, wait and see. And along comes R7, you know, le less than a month ago, um, which has better autofocus, better high ISO, 
<laughs> more, more pixels, more frames per second, better video. And it's launching at about 29,000 Rand. Now, this makes a lot more sense. And for anybody who's shot with either, you know, 70D, 80D, 90D, 71, 72, as you quite rightly know, probably the most successful cameras in the wildlife and birding uh, scenario in South Africa. Anybody who's got one of those cameras, it's a very, very logical move to to look at the R7. And um, for the first sort of six months of sales, I would say up until the end of this year, the R7 is going to come with that RF EF adapter in the box which means that you can make your move to mirrorless at your own pace, go and get the R7, keep your existing lenses. But we do want you to move over to RF because when you see the difference that you get out of the RF lenses, um, and you know there are some restrictions on you using EF lenses on RF bodies. Oh, I think that's that adapter straight away makes it very really fantastic so you know tell us about the r7 i mean you know, there's a lot of talk around this and almost everyone else walking with one of my mates who has about 10 canon cameras this past weekend and he's, he can't wait to get his hands on an r7 so what makes this camera so special and specifically what makes it so attractive to the birding market well you know above and beyond all else you know the the singular most important reason why people should move to mirrorless and you know, everybody's got their own argument about this. Everybody will say, oh, why mirrorless? Oh, because it's smaller, it's lighter, it's more compact, it's, it's you know, quicker, da, 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 da. All of those arguments are valid. Uh, but I have to say, without any, 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 any shadow of a doubt, the singular most critical reason why you would go to, to mirrorless is autofocus. And autofocus pretty much alone should be the deciding factor. As it was on the SR and the RP, it was very, very interesting. And the fact that it had eye tracking autofocus and you could get uh, people at the left hand side or the right hand side of the frame and it would see their eyes, that was radical at the time. When we looked at the advancements, the R5 and the R6 with the animal eye autofocus, and now with the R3 with this phenomenal artificial intelligence where it can not just do um, people, it can do animal, it can do birds, and it can do vehicles. It is absolutely and utterly phenomenal. And that technology is now filtered into the R7. So here you've got a camera that not only gives you, compared to the 72, you're going from 20 to 30 million pixels. You're going from 10 frames a second to 30 frames a second. That that alone is phenomenal. Your high ISO, ISO capability, at least two stops higher ISO capability, if not more. Added to that, the uh, the video capability, having having this absolutely amazing 4K video capability, and don't underestimate that um, from a photographer's point of view, from a birding point of view, the, the, the multimedia aspect is coming. Social media is already on this mindset where moving images are far more Im- impactful and far more important than still images. When you add that to the mix, and especially if we, if we narrow it down to birders in particular, this crop sensor on this R7 with its phenomenal performance of 30 million pixels 30 times a second, with this bird eye autofocus tracking and the fact that you can track birds and animals across the entire frame with the brighter than F8 lenses. With the F8, F11 lenses, you're, you're struck, stuck in a zone that's about sort of 40% across the central square, um, which is still phenomenal by comparison to, to DSLR. In DSLR, you had a single focus point, hopefully with some surrounding points, and you had to get that single focus point on the bird in flight to have any chance of it being in focus. Now you're looking at the at the, at the, the you know the R7 with a hundred five hundred millimeter lens for example that's a you know one sixty to eight hundred odd uh, and you just basically point it in the right direction and and essentially the autofocus picks up the fact that it's a bird locks on the bird's body narrows it down to the head locks onto the eye 
when I first saw it, I thought it was witchcraft. It was absolutely insane. I mean, I, the first the first bird I ever took a photograph of with the bird I ought to focus on the R5. And this was six months ahead of it was an announcement. I had the camera covered in black tape sitting at Richflay uh, uh, Wildlife, uh, well, sorry, Wildlife Nature Reserve next to uh, our offices in Pretoria. And I put the 800 F11 and I pointed it at a, a, a long-tailed widow bird. And here's a black bird with a black eye, black beak, black feathers, and a black wattle around the eye. And to have the autofocus not only lock on the bird, lock on its head, and find its eye, I sat there gobsmacked. I've ne- how, did, how did it know this? Uh, and every single time I pointed it at a, at a bird, it was 90% of the time nailing the body, head, and, and then the eye. And that, to me, was an, a phenomenal game changer, absolutely insane. And when I started putting it through its absolute paces, uh, and I mean, once the R3 arrived, I took the R3 up to Chobe. And I'm, I mean, I was shooting birds in flight where they were nowhere near the center of the frame. There was one to the left and one to the right, and the, the autofocus kind of knew, hey, that's what I want. And it just nailed it. Sure. So in, in a nutshell, you know, before you go or do or think or anything else, you know, autofocus is your reason to switch above and beyond anything else. And when you take something like the R7 with all of that specification, all that incredible autofocus technology for less than 30,000 Rand, yowza. And then what about performance in low light? Because a lot of times as a birder, I'm trying to take photos of birds and forests and the lighting's not great. So how does the R7 perform in low light? Well, it, it's phenomenal. And again, this this is the thing. It's not the same as a full frame. Make no mistake. It, it is a crop sensor. So, you know, the pixels are smaller. But compared it, compare it to a 72, and this is this is where we've seen a lot of reviews online and a lot of opinion pieces, and particularly the, the, the rich Americans uh, on YouTube. You're like, well, you know, the, the, the high ISO is not great. It's not pretty. They're comparing it to an R3 or they're comparing it to an R6, both of which are cameras that are, you know, the R6 is 50,000 Rand. The R3 is over 100,000 Rand. When you look at a camera that's three, four times the price and full frame, yes, you're going to get better, better low-light performance. But when you take it from the 72 um, and you're getting at least two, if not three stops higher, straight out of the camera, immediately, I can promise you, if you were safe at 800 on the 72, you're safe at 3200 on the R7. Then you add to the mix noise processing. And the fact that there's new software out there like Topaz, for example, Topaz sharpening and Topaz noise, phenomenal programs, phenomenal software that can that can do absolutely amazing stuff. You know, don't even, don't even think about it. Don't even worry about it. It's just get the shot. That's it. Bottom line, get the shot. And if it's a lifer like this, this wonderful little rare bird that's locked up in Balaboro this week, yeah, you know, <laughs> doesn't matter if it's in low light, get the shot. We spoke earlier about the 800 lens, and obviously this the R7 has a crop sensor. So in terms of putting the two together, I mean, won't that provide too much magnification with the R7 with the, the 800 lens? Well, um, yes and no. You know, to, to be fair, Canon has just launched a, not only a, a monster 800 little 5.6, but for the first time ever, a 1200 millimeter f/8, which is a phenomenal optic. And um, for, for for birding or for hand holding, it's almost too much. I would say almost too much, but not entirely so. Um, I've shot with the R7 with a 1200mm. I've shot birds in flight. The most critical thing to remember, beyond, above and beyond anything else, 800mm is pretty much the sweet spot for birding. And I find the overwhelming majority of bird photography that I do that I love, love, love the most is on a full frame sensor with the 800 so, you know, the R7 with the um, the 600 F11, I mean, the 611 F11 about, 
11 and a half, 12,000 rand. It's a very, very attractive option because it gives you that 800 mil focal length, but it is tiny. I mean, it's a really, really small piece of work. And above all else, very, very well priced. That, I would say, is probably where you would go to as your first step. But the biggest mistake I find a lot of photographers make with big glass is about the mentality of there's a bird on a tree and it's 70, 80, 90, 100, 120, 200 meters away. And hoping for a pin-sharp record shot, well, pin-sharp amazing shot on something that's far away because you've got an 800, because you've got a 1200 mil lens is the biggest mistake because it's not actually about that. Um, 800 mil is about spectacular detail on something like you know, a, a bird smaller than, you know, like the, the Cape Pendulum tip, for example. Um, shooting something like that, anything further than 10, 15, 20 meters away. It is a spec, and if you're lucky to get more than seven pixels, you're, you're going to be happy. But having an 800, 600 mil lens on a bird like that 10, 15 meters away means that the quality you get is truly and utterly spectacular. And I mean, I've seen some amazing shots of tiny things, twin spots, quail finches, that kind of story. But with the 800 mil lens, even the 800 f11, it is really, really phenomenal. It's about taking spectacular detail of small items that are not far away. Anything further than 30, 40, 50 meters, yes, you may get a shot, but you have to treat it as a record shot because the environmentals, the haze, the dust, anything in the air between you and that subject, further you are away, doesn't mean how, doesn't matter how long your lens is, it's going to be fuzzy. And it's hard for people to understand that on a 300,000 round lens. Yeah, it's like very good, interesting what you said there. So if you look at that there, you're looking at a 600 mil lens and a camera, you're looking at just about 40 odd thousand rand, which I mean, in terms of when we started speaking initially all that, that time ago about mirrorless cameras, you know, you were paying more for a body than, than that whole setup. And it's really cool that mirrorless is becoming becoming more affordable. Yeah, yeah. And, and without any huge sacrifice in quality. And, and again, you don't have to just believe me. Have a look online. Uh, look at the, the big names out there, birding, you know, all the different birding websites, whether it's, um, you know, the, the, the guys on YouTube or even just photography reviewers from Ken Rockwell to, you know, I can't remember all the names at the moment. But have a look and see what they're saying about the optical quality of the 600, the 800. And even more importantly, the new little RF 100, 400. And if I was to suggest anything you, for you as an incredible combination for the R7, that 100-400 RF mount is astonishingly good for 11,000 rand. It's a tiny lens. Yes, it's 5.6 to f8. Absolutely no saga with that. But for what you're paying, you could get an R7 with a 100-400 and a 600mm f11 lens, and you're less than 50,000 rand, and you've now got a birding kit of epic proportions. And, and that was just like, uh, you couldn't even think about that five years ago. Yeah, it's really exciting the options you've got available, Roger. But I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. It's been fantastic. And I don't think this will be the last time. I know we've got some stuff coming up in the pipeline. We don't want to talk too much about that now. But I'm really excited. The next couple of months, we should be announcing really exciting, especially for the younger photographers. So yeah, Roger's been fantastic to chat to you. Look forward to chatting Look forward to chatting soon again. Thank you. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Sorry I talked your, your ear off a little bit there, but uh, I hope I've got uh, the point across and the ideas that we have in mind. Remember, autofocus is the thing. Hey, that's why you need to move. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Sarossi Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, play a part, download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. So our next guest this week is on Garver Game Reserve's head guide who has just been crowned 
the 2022 Safari Guide of the Year, Cameron Pierce. So firstly, Cameron, welcome to the show and a big congratulations. Uh, good evening, Adam. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it and uh, lovely to be on the show with you. So before we chat about your story and the award that you won, tell us a little bit about Angava Game Reserve. Why is this place so special? Well, um, Angava is up here in uh, the Atosha area. We are joining Atosha National Park. Uh, we have 30,000 hectares of prime Mopani savanna coupled with uh, you know the access onto the, the pans themselves. So yeah, it's just this, this great fusion of the national park and having this massive expanse to explore as well as having all of the the luxuries that a, a private game reserve affords you. So great uh, walking safaris, night drives, uh, you know, all of these things are possible. And we have uh, four different camps ranging from tented to uber luxury. And we are at the top end of the market here in, in Namibia. And it's definitely our goal to be the number one safari destination in Namibia without doubt. So this is a birding podcast. So tell us what, what birds can visitors to Ngava hope to expect? So there's yeah some obviously very special uh, Namibian uh, near endemics. I was busy teaching a, a lecture today, and we had uh, carp tit and uh, bare cheek babblers visiting us literally right at the door of the of the classroom. Um, also, really very nice uh, rock runners up on on the mountains of the lodge. Uh, we had plenty of uh, hot labs spurfile this season because of the very good rains. Um, there's obviously the new um, species split of the Orange River Franklin, which is um, been dubbed the Kuneni Franklin, and uh, we do see those every now and then. Yeah, so plenty of uh, of near endemics. The the white-tailed shrikes are a little bit scarce, and um, and the violet wood hoopers. But every now and then we we get lucky with those as well. Yeah, I must say, Namibia is one of my favorite destinations, to, or one of my dream destinations to visit. Um, you know, it's one of those places where there's not as many species as other countries, but the special birds you get there are are very very special. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously being a, a more arid environment, well, the whole country is, is fairly arid. Um, we don't have the same species diversity as the more mesic environments in the Delta and the Kruger, um, but there's a very high degree of, of endemism here. So yeah, the birds that you that you see, you might not see a lot of them, but they're all probably going to be very special and, and certainly a lot of lifers for somebody who's never been here before. Yeah, and then obviously for international visitors, Namibia as a country as a whole, is it's quite stable. I mean, a lot of African countries, there's been turmoil over the years, but Namibia is you know, a relatively safe country, which is also makes it a fantastic destination to visit. Yeah, absolutely. Very stable. So pretty much only one uh, major political party uh, who's been in, in charge of the country since uh, independence in 1990. And um, yeah, there's... Uh, yeah, it's a very peaceful country. The people are very friendly. There's plenty of uh, days of sunshine. As we know, Namibia is one of the sunniest countries in the world. So I think there's over 300 days of sunshine every year. So yeah, it's a very destination, very easy to travel around, easy to self-drive, easy to do the luxury fly-in safaris. So yeah, absolutely a, a, a ideal luxury destination. So I was following the Safari Guide of the Year competition on instagram and was really interested to see some of the, the things that you the things that you guys were getting up to so firstly for people that might be listening that have no idea what the safari guard of the year competition is all about can you tell us what this award is all about and also how is the winner decided so um the competition was conceptualized um by a gentleman by the name of Mike Carantonis, who is a, a guide himself and, and he's been a private guide and owner of africa direct for many years and uh, Mike wanted to basically give safari guides a platform to be recognized for all of the incredible contributions that they make to the travel industry. You know, often your guide um, can make or break your experience and they're not always recognized for that. So Mike wanted to give us that platform and he's done, 
incredibly well. Um, Michelle Duplessis from Fogasa has gotten on board in the last uh, three years or so, and she's also just taken the competition from strength to strength. So it is the the premier guiding um, award in in Southern Africa at the moment. And um, yeah, we we engage in a variety of different events to test all of your skills from. Uh, you know, the game drive and the bushwalk, the guided walk are definitely the two most heavily weighted categories because they take up so much of the experience. But there's also a variety of other categories like birding, uh, photography, track and sign. Um, there was even a surprise um, viewer's choice award where we had to uh, get on, on a television interview with Wild Earth uh, this, this this year's event. So that was quite a surprise and uh, very nerve wracking. I had a chat to Roger just before you. He was the previous guest in this episode, and he, uh, he mentioned that you're one of the lucky few guides that got to use the R7. So what was that experience like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Roger and uh, Andrew Averley from Canon, they brought a couple of um, R7s and R10s uh, for us to try, um, and they are absolutely going to change the game of uh, photography. So I think, you know, we've been moving across from SLR to mirrorless for, for some time now, but it's it's the cost has just been a little bit prohibitive. So the R7 and the R10 are going to bring it right down into that um, very manageable price point. And I think within the next two years, we're going to see very few SLRs on the market. They really are changing the game, especially in terms of the animal eye autofocus and tracking birds in flight. I mean, it's uh, birds in flight photography has, has changed because of mirrorless. And um, we also, uh, Canon was very kind to sponsor us these little... Um, PowerShot zooms. It's like a little mini video camera that takes stills and video. Um, literally fits into the palm of your hand and it can zoom from 100 mils uh, to 400 and to 800. So it's great for those very quick ID shots, especially when you're out in the field and you don't necessarily want to be carrying a big camera with you. So Canon's been bringing out some fantastic products uh, for birders in the last couple of months. Well, they're still to actually be released, some of them. And what lens were, was your R7 paired with, the one you're using? Uh, the one that we were using was uh, just the standard 100 to, to 400 lens. But um, I believe that Roger and Andrew, they had a couple of, uh, well, there was obviously the, the most versatile one, I reckon, is probably the 100 to 500 uh, with incredible image quality. And uh, Roger did also have uh, an 800 and a 1200, which are obviously super specialized, but, um, you know, brilliant birding lenses if, uh, if you can afford that, that sort of money for them and if, uh, if, if you need that sort of range. So what was quite cool is is not only did you win the overall prize, but there were also categories that made up the the competition. What categories did you win? So um, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to win the the guided walk category. Um, you know, it's something that I've spent a lot of time on this past six months, uh, doing a lot of training with the the guides here at Ongava in terms of really specialising the walking safari experience. Um, so I was happy to walk away with that one. The birding was obviously a big one for me. Um, you know, I've, I've been in love with birds for probably the last 10 years and I spend a lot of time birding particularly since lockdown and uh, so I was, I was quite happy to walk away with the birding category. Uh, track and sign is another interest of mine and uh, and I'd spend a lot of time staring down at the ground at tracks and analyzing them and studying them uh, so I was was happy to walk away with the track and sign category and the one that I was probably the most surprised about was the storytelling that was the one that I was really nervous about and uh, yeah somehow I managed to to nab that one as well. So uh, the competition is all about consistency. You know, if you if you score well in all categories, that is the key to walking away with the overall prize, being a jack of all trades, really. So in terms of birding, you said you started your birding journey about 10 years ago. So how did that start up? Yeah, I mean, so birds have always kind of been in, in the periphery for me. Um, you know, I've always um, noticed the birds and, and enjoyed them in passing uh, as, a, as a child. But um, once I'd gone a bit further on in my guiding journey and uh, 
made my way to Tualu Kalahari, I noticed that there were all of a sudden a whole suite of different birds to what we'd seen in the Kruger where I started my career. And again, like we, you know, these arid environments don't have a huge diversity of birds, but most of the things that you see are just so different. And that started to really spark my interest in, in visiting different areas and, and covering the whole subregion eventually. And you, when we were preparing for this, you spoke about your experience in the flock to marrying cruise and just being around birders that were so experienced. And yeah, I actually got to connect with you at Strandfontein uh, before, long before I knew we'd be doing this this interview. So yeah, how, how did that um, time on the flock to marrying cruise help you in your birding journey? Yeah, I mean, the, the flock to marrying cruise is just such a a gathering of the world's experts in seabirds and just birds in general. Um, so it was incredible to spend time just speaking to people like, uh, you know, Peter Ryan and listening to the lectures from Peter Harrison uh, were really inspiring. And the, I mean, the level of, of birding amongst those uh, birders is, is really phenomenal. So I spent a lot of time also before the, the cruise with a friend of mine, um, Otto Scribante, and we were uh, covering some of the areas that we'd missed before. So I did a bit of the Karoo, a bit of the West Coast, South Coast in the Cape before jumping on the cruise. And once we jumped off in Durban, we also covered quite a bit of uh, KZN up at Insekeni and then down into Zululand as well. So yeah, just, just visiting all those different regions and plugging some of the holes, areas that we hadn't been to, species that we hadn't seen yet, um, and, and just spending time with great birders. I mean, that's the key to becoming a, a good guide and a, and a good birder is, is spending time with others who have something to teach you. I think what's always great for myself is when I get to spend time around these these birders that are a lot better than myself without them giving you like a lecture. It's almost like you 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 learn something about your own birding. You learn how to improve your own birding. I mean, when we were on the flock to Marin Cruise and I got to stand you know, next to some of these guys, you know, these expert guys, guys who are experts, guys like um, Dom Rollinson, who's like one of the best birders in the country. And, you know, there were times I walked away and just through the conversations and the experiences, you really, you really walk away with something deposited into your birding journey. You know, you know, spending time around these birders, were there, were there things that you learned about your own birding that you, you might've applied when you went back and yeah, you know, after, after the flock, the flock cruise? Yeah, I think just in terms of um, realizing that uh, you, you're never complete as a birder, you know, um, when you see how much detail there is to learn, not just about bird identification and about their calls, but about their ecology and bird conservation. And and I think that's what, what I really took away from that trip was understanding that um, it's not enough just to to look at the birds and enjoy watching them, but we, we actively have to to try and protect them. And um, so I made a little pledge to the uh, the Mouse Free Marion Project, which is obviously aimed at ridding um, Marion Island of all the, the house mice. And um, yeah, I, th- I think that's what I really took away from it was that understanding that we, we really need to conserve these areas that hold all of these wonderful birds that we enjoy seeing so much. So something I've heard from a lot of guys who are safari guides is the frustration they have is that they take guests from around the world around, which is an immense privilege. These guys are really feel privileged to be able to do the job they do. But they do say that the challenge they have at times is that, you know, if you are a birder, you know, almost every guest is not interested in looking at birds. They All they want to see is the big five and the big mammals that the country offers. So, you know, how do you deal with that frustration and, and at the same time keep your birding skills sharp? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people will tell you that they're not interested in birds, but some people just actually haven't had a, a look at a really good looking bird like a lilac breasted roller through a, a decent pair of binoculars. And so I think you have to start, um, you know, quite simple and, and start with the crimson breasted shrikes and the lilac breasted rollers 
and some of the larger birds of prey are people always love that you know to start off with those and and once you foster a little bit of that interest um you find that people start to to look more and more at birds um over the course of three or four days so i think that um yeah it's our duty as guides to at least open that door for people if they would like to walk through it but yeah it, it can be difficult and I, and I think that uh it's always important that when on days when you don't have guests to grab the other guides, kick them out of bed and um, go and do some birding just, just amongst the guides. You know, it's a great way to keep your skills sharp and to look for species that you might not have the time to, to scratch out when you're with your guests. And when you're on leave, don't go home to the city and, uh, and you know, lie in bed for two weeks. Go out and, and explore different areas and, um, yeah, and just try and experience as many different habitats and species as you can. Yeah, you spoke about that when we were preparing. Also, the fact I was asking you on, on your hobbies, what hobbies you have, and you know, a lot of guests I speak to at music or movies or reading or something. And your your something that you said was quite interesting, which I think has shaped how you are as a guide, is the fact that you said that everything about your life, you know, not just when you're guiding, but when you're away from the field, everything, every passion you have is linked to nature. Yeah, you know, there's that uh, cliched saying that that we often hear where they say, if you enjoy your job, uh, you'll never work a day in your life. And, um, you know, there is some truth to that. And I mean, nature for me is just, it's such a regenerative, regenerative place. It's, it's somewhere that I feel at peace. It's something where it's, you know, it's a place where everything makes sense. And, and I feel happy being in nature. So, yeah, so I sometimes turn around to my guests uh, when we are out in Safari and I say to them, you know what? I feel guilty that I get paid for this sometimes because I would actually be doing this if I was on holiday. And I, and I do try and, and get away to as many natural places um, as I can on holiday. So, it's, and, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're doing that on holiday, you could, it can only be good for your, for your career. So you haven't just, you know, walked in and won this award. There's been a journey that you've had as a, as a safari guide over the years. Talk us through that journey and, and oh, were there any defining moments that have shaped the type of guide that you are today? Um, so yeah, when I first started uh, my guiding career, I, I did a course through a company called Chivingui Bush Experiences, who are unfortunately no longer in business at the moment. And that was in the Waterberg. And then my first job was at Lion Sands in the Sabi Sands. And I was very privileged to have a, an incredible team of um, very experienced guides there who kind of opened my, my eyes to, you know, how, how far we can go with, uh, with this guiding uh, career. And there were some great birders amongst them. And, and that was pretty formative. That first job at, at Lion Sands, I then moved on to Sabi Sabi, where I progressed my skills and later on uh, to Tswalu Kalahari. Um, and then I spent a few years in the, in the UK, um, working for a small safari company there by the name of Yellow Zebra Safaris. And they've since grown to uh, quite a tremendous size. Um, and that, that taught me a lot of the back end of the business. So yeah, that, that was, that was uh, just a, a huge eye-opener as well to get out of Africa for a little bit and realize that the world is, is bigger than the, this little bubble in the bush that we sometimes form. But when I came back, um, I very quickly jumped on board with uh, Abercrombie and Kent, and I've been guiding multi-destination uh, safaris for them since I've been back in South Africa for the last five years. And um, up at Ungava now for the last six months permanently. I have been coming up to train their guides for two months every year for the last five years, but we've decided to make it permanent now. So yeah, there's been a couple of um, key mentors along the way. And I think that's that's the, the biggest key uh, is to surround, just, to surround yourself with people that are going to help you along your journey and are going to provide you with uh, an aiming point, you know, something to aim for. Yeah, we don't have very long on this. We've got like three minutes to go. But the question I want to ask you is, and this, without getting yourself into trouble, what is one thing that you think every safari guide would like 
guests to know? Hmm. Um, I think that uh, <laughs> there's a couple of things that we we obviously don't like as guides, and and one of my biggest pet peeves, I would say, is is when people call animals. Ideally, we'd like to experience nature from an observer's perspective. We don't want to have any impact, as you know. So we we just want to get in there, watch what's going on. Uh, see everything from the outside and then leave without having any impact or at least as little impact as we can. And calling animals is just one of the the worst ways to do that. So I think that's uh, a pet peeve for a lot of guides. So anyone going on safari, please try not to call the lions um, that don't respond like house pets. So you've won the Safari Guide of the Year for 2022. And, you know, just chatting to you, and I'd love to have you back on the show. I don't think we've even you know, scratched the surface of, of who you are as a person. But, you know, you've won this year and this is, this for a lot of people would be the pinnacle of their career. But I really, through conversation with you, you're someone who's, who's driven, you're someone who's determined to really make a success of your life. So what does the future look like for you? What, what, what do you see in your, in your future? So Adam, I think, you know, obviously while I'm here at, uh, at Ongava, I'd like to contribute something to the guides here at Ongava um, to, to leave it a better place than when I arrived um, to help professionalize the whole industry in, in Namibia and help them to to reach the heights of what we have reached in South Africa and Zimbabwe. And um, yeah, on a, on a personal front, probably to do a bit more uh, specialized birding safaris and uh, more naturalist type of safaris, you know, searching for biodiversity in terms of mammals and birds and and to just become a little bit more specialized and maybe uh, a little bit deeper into Africa and and perhaps uh, outside into other regions like Asia and South America in the future. All right, Cameron, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been an honor to chat to you and I can't wait to have you on the show again because like I said, there's so much more we can chat about and yeah, just thank you so much. And again, I just want to say a big congratulations. Thank you very much, Adam. I really appreciate you having me on this evening. And yeah, give me a call anytime. I'd love to join you again. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Please take some time to check out the other resources that we have on our website. If you have any questions or comments, please drop us an email on info at All relevant links from the episode can be found in the notes to the show. Until next time, be blessed and happy birding.